Make more birdies. A bottle of bourbon, a little glass, and some ice. This is not a tip. This is a prescription. Trust me. Mm. If you don't, you will fall out of balance. Welcome to Birdies and Bourbon. Sit down and have a sip. Welcome back, everybody, to the Birdies and Bourbon show. Uh, this is an absolute treat. We, um, we have the, uh, the Oracle of Spirits on, the Savant of Spirits, Paul Pacult. Uh, I don't know. What do you want to go by? It's your show. I, my profession is that I commune with spirits. That's, uh, that's really how I describe it. And for the, last, for the last 30 years, I've communed with over 30,000 spirits. Fair, fair enough. And, and we're, uh, we're definitely looking forward to digging into that. Um, if you're not familiar with Paul, uh, we'll get into uh, some of his background. He's got some really amazing stories with some, uh, I'll, I'll call them pioneers in the, the whiskey bourbon industry and, and, and across all spirits, as a matter of fact. Uh, you'll see, I think this is the new release, Paul, the new Kindred Spirits that you put out. This is the it second is or third edition. This is the third edition, Cal. And, uh, yeah, and 20, about 2,400 yeah. spirits reviews. Uh, you know, I, I got the got it last week and I started in and I'm like, OK, I'm not going to be able to make it to the end by the time we have a chance to talk. So uh, so then I, I kind of slowed. You know, it's like a good drink. Right. I mean, there's no reason to rush through it. Just kind of sit back, take your time. One of the fun things that, that I think I'm going to have with this with with your book and and, you know, shame on me, I, I don't have the first or second but one of the fun things is going to be to kind of experience, um, you know, with with your history, with your background and, and your expertise when it comes to tasting is to sit down with a few of these bottles. Uh, what I have and, and I've actually kind of earmarked a few of, hey, I need to go get these and we'll we'll talk about uh, your your recent blending experience a little later on in the show. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's going to be really fun to get into uh, get into a pour kind of, you know, look at it through, uh, I'll say a professional's eyes and kind of how you saw it. And then, you know, maybe start to, to train, uh, to hone my palate, if you will, a little in, uh, you know, kind of what you've seen and, and, and over your experience, because I would definitely call you a professional. I'm sure, uh, uh, many others do as well, but before we get into that, I, I didn't know we were going to get this little nugget because we were going <laughs> to talk all spirits, but you said there may be a golf story, uh, somewhere. Well, years ago, I mean, the reason that I got into this whole gig with spirits, guys, was uh, I was actually a wine guy. I I taught wine. I I was a wine journalist. I taught a wine class in New York City. And in one of my classes, uh, three people from the New York Times were taking an advanced course. And they came up to me and said, you know, we really we followed your writing career. and we're looking for someone to write about Scotch whiskey in this New York Times Sunday magazine. Would you like to do it? <clears throat> and uh, after I regained consciousness, um, I, I said, look, I, I've, got a, I've got a square with you guys. I don't know anything about Scotch whiskey. I, you know, I'm a wine geek. And they said, well, do you want the job or not? Well, so what do you say you know, to, the, to, the, to the New York Times? So you say yes. So anyway, so... Of course, I had, I had to learn about it. So it was kind of on the job training. So they sent me over several times to Scotland, came back with stories on, on one of the time on one of the stories for the Times Sunday magazine. The whole theme was 
how the history of Scotch whiskey is entwined with the history of golf in Scotland. And I thought, man, this is great, you know, because I was playing golf two, three times a month at the point. I mean, terrible. My handicap was playing, you know. So anyway, so <laughs> so I go over to Scotland and the, the person from the Scotch Whiskey Association, who was an avid golfer, said to me, you know, I, I we love the, the idea of the story. So I've set up tea times for us at Carnoustie, uh, St. Andrews, uh, uh, Turnberry, uh, Nairn, and Brewer. And I, you know, and I went, oh, <laughs> hey, this is great. Thanks for doing this. So we went, so we went to all these courses and Carnoustie ate me alive. Uh, Turnberry, ditto. I did the best at Nairn up on up on coast uh, north coast of Scotland, but then we went to Brewer, <clears throat> and Brewer is this beautiful course, but there are sheep roaming all over it. And so I was playing with the club pro and my friend from the Scots Whiskey Association, and we get to about the seventh hole, and and I'm about 150 yards away from the green. And in front of me is this entire herd of sheep. So I, I said to the to the pro, I said, what am I supposed to do with it? And he said, just shoot over them. <laughs> and we'll walk around. <clears throat> so I did that. I, I forget what I used. Nine iron, whatever, pitching, I, whatever. Sure. So we, yeah. but my, I was so thrown off by this herd of sheep <laughs> that the, the, I shanked the ball. It went way over and it ended up on another green. And I swear to you guys, as I was walking past that herd of sheep, I heard them booing. <laughs> you know, I have never forgiven sheep since that time. <laughs> So that's, oh, that's make, makes it, it to the table every year now, I hear. Hey? <laughs> but, you know, I have to tell you, it was <clears throat> it was so humbling to be there. And, yeah. you know, and my game at that point was virtually no game. You know, I mean, I could hit it relatively straight. And, but sure, uh, sure. So, so but, I, I got to ask real quick as you tell the story. So uh, and, and this is going to segue into a, a question that uh, was going to be later on, but we're going to go there. So we may we may fast forward a little and circle back. Um, but so you, you didn't know, you know, did you know when they when he named off the courses? I mean, did any of those really resonate with you, like what he had set up for you and kind of the the motherland of golf at, at that point in time? Yeah, well, I I'd yeah. done a little research beforehand um, just to prepare just so I could come back with some sort of copy for the New York times that would make sense. So I did some research. So, but I just didn't expect that I was going to be playing at the, I mean, th this person whose name was Yvonne Scott, who was lovely. Um, she, she just did this on her own. And because, you know, and that was the strength of working for the New York times. I mean, any place yeah. I'd go, and I wouldn't play this card too often. I wouldn't say, oh, I'm here for the New York Times, because um, <clears throat> I'm very low-key by nature. And But if people would say to me, uh, you know, oh, we've got a journalist coming. Who is it that you're writing for? And I'd go, eh, well, I'm writing for the New York Times. Oh, yes, hello. <laughs> and, 
<laughs> all these doors would open up all of a sudden. And that's what happened with with uh, the Scotch Whiskey Association person. She heard the story idea and she set up all these tea times. It was crazy. And, and uh, you know, it was embarrassing. I, in fact, I think it was either at Carnoustie or Turnberry. <laughs> we were playing with the club pro. <laughs> and at the first tee, he said, Paul, uh, why don't you go first? <clears throat> and and so I put the ball down on, on the tee. And he said, no, actually, the, the hole is that way, Paul. The hole is that way. <laughs> I was completely <laughs> Oh, man. That's, yeah, that, that's what you never want to hear. Right? So, so the, the few things, hey, so by the way, we've got your tea time at Carnoustie. You're playing with the club pro. And oh, by the way, Paul, you're our guest. Why don't you tee off first? It's like, it's like I, I know you're trying to be nice and generous and courteous and, you know, and all oh, the above. God. But it's like, no, really, why don't you guys go ahead? <laughs> hey, no pressure, Paul. You know, it's like, <laughs> right, right, right. Oh, God. Awesome. Great, great story. I, I don't know if you've had a <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you've had a chance to tell that story much or not. I haven't heard it in any of your, no. um, in, 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 in any conversation. So, no. well, if nothing else, we've, uh, we've got a, we've got a new, uh, we've got a new Paul Packholt story and, uh, yeah, it's great, great to hear. So I, I'm going to kind of, I'm going to now, I'm going to rewind ourselves, not too far back, but I'm going to go back to 1989, I believe when you accepted the, uh, wow. the writing gig with the New York times and, it, and, you know, as, as you mentioned, you, you know, you were uh, you were into wine. Wine was your thing. You were teaching wine classes, writing about wine. And, and of course, you get an opportunity. Hey, New York Times going to talk about scotch. I mean, hell, they could have told you you're talking about uh, pick, picks up toilet paper for crying out loud. And it's like, well, OK, I guess I'll learn about it. Right. That, so, that was but, the next year. There... That was the next year. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we all know that's not true. But I guess my question for you is, is what what does. What does Paul, you know, what's going through Paul's mind in 1989? And, and of course, you're familiar with writing about, uh, you're familiar with writing in the alcohol industry, mm -hmm. and you're familiar with writing about something that you've got a comfort level with. And now it's like, okay, I, I'm going to have to transfer my, you're not transferring your skill set per se, but now you're, you're, you've got a new medium to, to take on. Was that like, was there a lot of indigestion and heartburn over, you know, shit, am I going to be able to do this? Uh, I'd say probably <clears throat> fall down on the floor, speaking in tongues, panic. Um, and, and, and part of the reason was, when they asked me and, you know, and I said, look, I, I don't know anything. And they said, we'll find out and we'll send you over. And, you know, and I thought, oh, well, that's that's helpful. And then the, the guy, Rich Calandria from The New York Times said to me, well, <clears throat> you know, find some books, whatever books you can find on Scotch whiskey or whiskey in general, you know, and maybe that'll help. Problem was there weren't any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. None. It was it was a wasteland. There, there were no books. There was no information on Scotch whiskey. There was no internet. So it was it was just up to me. So it really became a, a process where, thank God, they said we'll send you over, because you know I didn't have much money at the time. I mean, I'm a journalist. You know, journalists don't make a lot of money. Yeah. So the having them. Uh, send me over was a huge, huge plus. And then they sent me over 
Well, I've been to Scotland 29 times. Wow. And I guess the time sent me over probably six or seven, those first six or seven times. Um, and that made the difference because then I just, I just, as soon I'll tell you guys, as soon as I landed, I knew I had made the right decision. As soon as I got off the plane in Edinburgh, I, there was just something that I said, oh, this was really smart. The interesting thing was I was, I was one of the writers in the New York uh, wine writers circle, just a, a group of friends. We all wrote about sure. wine and in various publications and the guy who was kind of the dean of the um, circle, um, Alex Bespaloff, really a nice, nice guy, pulled me over at one point and he said, <clears throat> so I hear through the grapevine that you're going to start writing about whiskey for the New York Times. And I went, yeah, boy, you know, I'm really excited about it. Going over to Scotland in a few weeks. I'm just so jazzed about it. And he went, you know, I, th I think this is really going to hurt your career. <laughs> writing, writing about scotch whiskey and he said yeah. you know it's brown <laughs> all right all right I, I mean but but back i mean at that point in time you probably didn't have i mean well you, you'll answer the question uh, but yeah. i mean were there a lot of crossover drinkers and and i mean if you re, you know no. if, if you if you take a look through your book and, and and many others i mean you know it's today in today's time and we'll get there in a minute i mean it's not uncommon that you know hey i may want to i may want to drink uh, an irish whiskey i may want to go to maybe or maybe i'm going to drink a really peated scotch and then hey let's put that up against a good smoky mezcal and and kind of do a side by side on some similarities different in color but a lot of a lot of the same structure and content, not in the makings of it, but, you know, at least from a taste profile, I, I think you can find some similarities, but, you know, to, to the point that he made, it's like, Hey, you're, you're going to now be, I guess, uh, shunned right in, in the wine area. It's like, what, what's this guy doing? Well, at the time, night, the late eighties, wine was King and wine was King for primarily for two reasons. One was the 1982 Bordeaux vintage, mm. which made the name of Robert Parker, the, the preeminent yeah. wine critic, probably of our generation, without any doubt. Um, but also because of California Cabernet Sauvignon, mm -hmm. they were really beginning to get some traction with uh, consumers. So wine was the darling of the day and spirits. <laughs> First of all, there, you know, there were probably only maybe three single malt scotches available at the time in, in the United States, Glenfiddich, the Glenlivet, uh, and I would guess Glenmorangie and maybe Macallan. But by and large, there weren't that many scotch single malts available. Of course, there were blended scotches. Sure. So at the time, it was all about wine. So I understood what, uh, what Alex was saying, that yeah, this, this might hurt your career uh, as a wine writer because spirits, spirits were not politically correct at the time. They just weren't. Nobody right. cared about it. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did you find it challenging to go from, uh, I, I mean, I'm just surpassing all my questions now. You, you've sent me off. Now my mind's way over here, but what, was it challenging? So your, your palate's kind of developed, you know, in tasting wine. And, uh, you know, again, Dan and I are professionals at nothing, Paul, but 
but we've drank enough to know what we like and 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 uh, we're not going to become professional tasters on here with you, even though we might ask for a few tips along the way as we talk. But was it a was it a big challenge in kind of developing um, your, uh, you know, from a sensory perspective, uh, moving from wine into spirits? And then and then if you want to elaborate on that, uh, how did your writing uh, evolve from, you know, writing about wine to writing about spirits. Tasting spirits is a whole different discipline to tasting wine. Um, I learned about tasting wine by working at a California winery for 10 years, uh, Rodney Strong Vineyards, uh, though in those days it was called Sonoma Vineyards. <laughs> so my whole skill set for tasting was developed completely on how to judge beverage alcohol, first of all, that was fruit-based. And secondly, that was generally between 11 to 13 at that time percent alcohol. So a fairly small window as far as learning how to use four senses, which I talk about in the book. Um, Dealing with Scotch whiskey and dealing with spirits in general at 40% alcohol or more was a very different skill set. In fact, for the first two years that I was critiquing spirits, because uh, once the New York Times project, once that first um, Scotch whiskey uh, article, a special section in the in the Sunday magazine went out, twenty eight pages, twelve thousand words, and the Times got all this this feedback from their readers. We want more. We want more because there wasn't anything out there about whiskey. Sure. So the Times hired me immediately to do more for the next year. So I had to kind of bone up on because they were asking, can you describe the different characteristics? So the first two years that I was actually that I had switched over from writing about wine to writing about whiskey and spirits in general, uh, I had headaches. And it wasn't until about two years into it that uh, a, an American distiller, Booker No, the grandson of Jim Beam, he and I were traveling around the country doing tastings together. And I, at dinner, in fact, it was in Kansas City. We had done a tasting and we went out to dinner afterward. <clears throat> and I was kind of down and Booker said, what's the matter, boy? You know, what, what's the matter? Uh, what's got your goat? You, you, you just don't see me tonight. And I said, you know, Booker, I just keep, anytime I, I taste spirits, I have headaches. And he said, well, show me what you're doing, boy. So I showed him how I did, because we had some bookers at the table. So I showed him, you know, how I do it. And a big inhalation. And he went, God, you know, I love you like a son, boy. But Jesus Christ, you're stupid. <laughs> So I said, Booker, what am I doing wrong? And he said, you don't, you don't take a big inhalation of spirits. It's just too much for your olfactory sense. All of this, all of this network uh, of membranes that are right here, actually, and a little bit up here, are really sensitive. And if they're overloaded with something as harsh as alcohol, they, they give you problems and they let you know in the form of headaches. So... After that, I was fine. And it was it was Booker telling me that I was this dumb shit because I was doing it wrong. Um, and so he said, 
when you inhale spirits, leave your lips parted. And when you leave your lips parted, you circumvent a lot of that alcohol. And from then on, never had a problem. So Look at that, Cal. It, Quick tip. So it really it 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 just it just took time for me to kind of make the the sensory switch that this was spirits were a very different, much more demanding animal than wine or beer. And you know, guys, the other thing, and I say this in the book, is that people say to me, God, you've been doing this for so long, you must you must have some special talents or so. And I always say the same thing. No, I don't. I, I just follow a regimen. When I taste, I follow this regimen that I've done for 30 years. And I try to remember, I, I build a mental library so that I remember two or three aspects of uh, whatever I'd be tasting. I don't know. I've got so much shit here in the office. I can't believe it. But, but whatever I'd be tasting, if I'm, if I'm writing notes for it, I just mentally try to remember um, harsh, uh, reminds me of raisin bread, reminds me of blackberry compote. I, and so I file all that stuff away. And I have, I have taught seminars to consumers who will say, oh, no, you know, I'll never be able to taste like you. No way. And after a couple hours, they're tasting like me. And it's, hmm. it's just a matter of creating a regimen that's comfortable for you, mm -hmm. that you keep repeating time after time after time, and you don't change it. And if you do that, I believe, I firmly believe absolutely anybody could, unless they've had COVID, that absolutely anybody can be a good taster. It's not brain surgery. Yeah, the good news is I, I did have COVID, but I was fortunate that I didn't lose, uh, I didn't lose any of my uh, taste. Wow, you're unusual. So, well, you can say that again, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> Cal, I'll tell you, I haven't read the book yet, but it's interesting what he's talking about in terms of having the regimen and having the methodology about how you're going to taste. You know, and I can only see, Cal, I'm going to bring it back to golf for one second, in that your routine is going to be, when you're tasting, is going to be a lot like Miguel Angel Jimenez on the range <laughs> with your warm-up sessions, but I can could see be. this happening. <laughs> it, 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 it very well could be. It very well could be. Uh, so I'm going to shift gears on us a little bit, but I'm going to kind of stick with this whole um, with the, the the sensory and the tasting, Paul. And, and what do you have, by the way? Club soda? We have a G&T or oh, still water with some lime. OK, there you go. Yeah. Get to keep the voice fresh. I, well, no, uh, actually, I don't drink a lot. OK, and, so, and uh, reason, so are reason. you always a spitter? No, no, yes. Well, pro professionally, when I'm tasting, I always spit. I never swallow. Okay. And I only taste six things every morning. I never go past six, six spirits. But the, the reason, really the reason I don't drink a lot is I have a very low threshold to alcohol. And, yeah. you know, one cocktail and I'm, I'm singing the, the whole medley from the, this Oklahoma play. So... So I'm not a good drinker. How so, many? Hey, Paul, and, and I mean this. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. Oh uh, no, I want you to go first. Well, yeah, I, and I mean this respectfully. But how many bullshit calls do you get on that one when you tell people that? Uh, just about every time. 
just about every time. <laughs> oh, the, the other thing, guys, that people say, oh, you, you must have this unbelievable seller. You must have this unbelievable collection of spirits. And no, because, you know, I, I don't believe in hoarding stuff. You know, the, right. yeah. the great thing about beverage alcohol is beverage alcohol lubricates communication and a, a feeling of community. That, that's why bars are so popular. I mean, because it's all about community. So sure. uh, drinking alone, to me, I mean, that's so stupid. Collecting. Collect for what? You know, I, you know spirits should be enjoyed. That's the whole idea. Me- meant I mean, to be enjoyed. I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, if you talk, yeah. and, and we'll, I'll probably ask the question or two about your, how you got hooked up with Booker a little later on, but I mean, I'm sure you're talking to any of those guys, right? And they're making it to consume. Exactly. Not to, not to bury. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and uh, I mean, Sue and I, and my wife and I know, you know, a ton, hundreds of distillers around the world. And I can tell you, not one of them is ever impressed by some jerk who comes in and says, Oh, I've got a collection of 4,000 Scotch whiskeys, you know, and, you know, and I, that, to them, that's, that's, that's not the way to go. The way to go is to share things. Yeah. That's, that's the way to go. That's the whole idea of spirits. And that's how the whole, our whole show got started was really about sharing you know, our experiences on the spirit side and on the golf side and just, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun. Let me ask you this, Paul. So when you're tasting and you said you don't taste like more than six at a time, but when right. you're, when you're sniffing and you're doing, uh, you're doing your routine, are you, do you have to break it up with like coffee in between the, the on the nosings or do you just no. go straight? Have you ever, ever tried anything like that or no? You don't need it. Yeah, I have. I, I'm, I'm actually, my favorite beverage of all is this <laughs> water. Okay with some citrus in it. <clears throat> and that for me is the best palate cleanser. Okay. I always taste Dan from eight 30 to around noon every day. And I just taste six things every day, all of the same category. I don't mix up things. I, I won't taste for instance, two vodkas, one tequila and three cognacs. Uh, Cause I need a frame of reference. Right. So those six will always be from one category. Uh, and I all the other thing is I always taste blind. I never know what I'm tasting. And because I believe I, I'm human, you know, so if I know what something is, if I know what the label is, if I know it's McAllen M, you know, that costs $6,000 a bottle. If I know it's that I'm kind of prejudiced already about the review. Mm-hmm. So, I make sure that I do not know what I'm tasting because to me, that's the only way to be totally objective about it. I agree. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, as, as I referenced earlier, you are a professional. So that's a great segue into uh, maybe an opportunity to talk about the ultimate spirits challenge. And I think prior to, prior to you, um, uh, I don't give creating, uh, founding, you, you can put it in your own words, but prior to that, I think you were part of a lot of, uh, competitions right. and, uh, you know, as, as I've read and listened, uh, you know, you, you maybe wanted to kind of steer that in a different direction. If you want hmm. to talk a little about uh, like, like what's in, we, you know, that that's a whole nother segment and probably, you know, two hours, but, you know, if you want to share a little about, you know, why did you think it was necessary or the ultimate spirit challenge to be a thing. And, and then what was, 
what did it take to get it off the ground? Mm-hmm. And then what was the blowback from the community when you did that? Or, or maybe positive. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> really, it's been positive. But uh, let me begin by saying that spirits competitions really began in Europe. And I think it was Italy and Austria, that area, the, the Austrian, Italian, Hungary, Hungary, that whole area, kind of Central Europe and Italy, they started competitions for brandies in particular um, back in the 1870s. So it's not a new concept. And by and large, the whole dynamic of spirits competitions had not changed up, up to the turn of the 21st century. You know, you have a bunch of judges you hand out medals like they're hot dogs on the 4th of July, and everybody's happy. Um, and so I had been asked to be a judge at, I don't know, a lot of, a lot of different spirits things, uh, festivals where they had competitions, etc. And I was always pretty alarmed because I'm so strict with my own regimen of tasting only six, tasting blind, um, I'm really strict with what I do. Um, And I found that a lot of the methodology of the competitions that I was a judge at was very sloppy. I I don't believe, and just for the reasons that I stated, um, you wouldn't be human if you weren't influenced by a label that you know or a price tag that you know. And competitions would tell judges what the prices were. You know, they'd be sloppy in their uh, in their presentations, so that you would know what you were tasting. And I always thought that's not the way to go about it. And just the whole thing of handing out medals just because you enter, uh, you know, I, I I just don't believe in that. You know, just to me, if if you're handing out awards. Hand it out on the basis of merit, not just because somebody joins. Uh, earn it. Earn like T-ball, right? Everybody gets a trophy. Exactly. Yeah. I, frankly, I hate that. You know, I, what is that teaching kids in many ways? So, and anyway, um, so in 2009, Sue and I were judging at a rum um, competition in Barbados. Geez, so on the surface, you think Barbados, rum, hey, this is going to be great. So we go down there, and the very first flight that they give us to judge was 14 or 15 overproof rums. Now, overproof rums are anywhere from 55 to 80% alcohol. And we looked at each other like, they must be kidding, right? I mean, by the time we would be judging number five, our palates would be totally destroyed. Sure. Plus, we knew what they were. So we said, we, we called the organizer over and we said, you can't be serious, right? You can't expect this panel to be tasting all of these high-proof rums and expect to get reliable results, honest results. And they went, oh, that's how it is. <laughs> and they walked away. <laughs> that's exactly what we're looking for. Nice work. <laughs> yeah. so, so we got up and we left. 
So, uh, so you the, didn't you didn't participate in the event? We we got up and we said we don't want to be a part of this. We don't want our good name because by that yeah. time, by that time we'd become pretty well known for spirits, and because of the times, because of our newsletter, and we said, you know, we don't want to be associated with this because this this is just bullshit. So on the plane home, I said, you know, sweetheart. That's not the way to do it. I, you know, all these all these things I'm a judge at, I hate the methodology. <clears throat> and Sue, being the, the brains of the family, said, let's just start our own competition. Mm. So a year later, we did in 2010. So the, the whole basis, guys, of, of Ultimate Spirits Challenge is that our methodology is really tight-assed. The, the judges never know what they're tasting. In fact, they don't just blind taste, we double blind. And by double oh, wow. blind, I mean the people in our back of house who are bringing in the spirits for the judges, they don't even know what they're bringing in. Wow. So there, there, there's just a handful of people who know what the judges are tasting, me as judging director, and two or three people in the back of the house. So we are so strict about our methodology that's why we keep growing every year, because the industry looks at what other competitions are doing. As I say, handing out medals, you know, just like their hot dogs on Coney Island on the 4th of July. <laughs> and, and we don't hand out medals. We hand out awards, but their products have to earn their way to get those awards. And most competitions will, uh, one panel will taste the entries, and that's it. And, you know, right. move on to the next because all the judges are overloaded with stuff. With us, uh, we take four weeks. <laughs> Most competitions just take two days. We take four weeks. And everything is done methodically. Every spirit that's entered into Ultimate Spirits Challenge will go through multiple panels. Not just one, but multiple panels. Some will go through four panels before they're given a final score. And that's because uh, my respect for the distillers of the world, the, the incredible women and men that Sue and I know, who their livelihoods are dependent on this stuff. Absolutely. We want to honor what they do with integrity. And we grow, we grew by 30% just this year in, in entries. And I think it's because the industry has come to realize these guys aren't fucking around. They, they really yeah. take this seriously. And when they look at our list of judges, I mean, it's a who's who of who are the best spirits, experts in the world. Um, so it, it's all about integrity. You know, from, from me tasting right behind me every morning, tasting blind, to making sure that in Ultimate Spirits Challenge, every product is treated with respect. I don't care if it's $4.99 or $4,999. That $4.99 bottle of something will be treated with the exact same respect as the $5,000 bottle. And to me, that's the only way to go about it. Yeah. So when did you, and, and I, I, I agree, I think one of the best ways to figure out 
what you like to drink and what you prefer is to your point. I mean, tasting blind and, and especially double blind. So you have no idea what the hell you're getting. I mean, that's really when you start to realize, you know, what, what's, and you find out eventually at the end, right. You, you know what you were drinking, but that's where, and, you know, and, and it's, I, I think taking notes and, and to your point, you know, and associating back with uh, probably foods is one of the best things, right. Or, or some common smells, maybe as you grew up as a kid, uh, you know, be it, uh, you grew up around a farm and you grew up around hay or you grew up mm-hmm. around horses and there's sawdust yeah. and whatever it may be, but that whole blind experience. And, and if you, you know, for the folks that are, that are listening, if you don't do it or you haven't done it, it may seem like a lot of work and it may seem like, Oh shit, I just want to drink. But if you truly want to figure out, Hey, why are there, well, and, and I, I have a point to the a moral of, of my statement, but if you, you know, you, you really want to figure out like, why are all these people drinking? You know, why are all these craft distilleries popping up? Why is now, uh, you know, American single malt going to, going to become its own designation? Mm-hmm. Why do all these craft distilleries or boutique distilleries exist? Well, it's because there are people that do want to explore and there's nothing wrong with the everyday. Hey, you know what? I'm, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I'm a Jack Daniels old number seven guy and that's what I like and I'm not moving away from it unless you don't have anything else. And then, you know, I may venture out because that's all I, you know, that's my only option. But, you know, I, I think people really put them, they, they stymie themselves from the experience. If you, if you enjoy a good glass of, of spirits, and you're not taking the time to explore what else is out there. And uh, again, shit, I could talk for you for hours. I, I got to keep this, uh, keep it condensed. But, but I mean, really, I, I think people kind of limit themselves to, I think people are, it's just like anything else, any, anything new or a change, people are afraid of it. And again, I think this book's a great way to kind of go from a trusted resource to look at tasting notes, kind of start to compare. And hey, go pick up three bottles. Go pick up three. Uh, go pick up three bottled and bonds off the shelf, and you can probably get them all for less than twenty bucks. And hell, if you don't like them, sit, send me a note, and uh, I'll, I'll buy them back from you. Just don't put any. Uh, <laughs> don't don't piss in them or spit in them or anything like that. But I mean, it, it's. I think that whole blind experience is is absolutely something that that kind of gets you in a realm of. Hey, it's yeah, I like to drink, but it's also, I mean, nobody wants to eat a cheeseburger every single day, even if you love cheeseburgers. Somebody asked me uh, one of the uh, kind of where I was going with that. One of the one of the one of the people who emailed me a few days ago who had bought the Kindle version of the new Kindred Spirits said, how do, I, how do I become a better taster? Even though he hadn't read the book yet, which I explained how to become a better taster. But one of the things I always tell consumers is taste with a group of your friends. Mm. People will learn so much more. Uh, people think because I taste alone and in this office every day <laughs> that that's the way to do it. That's not the way to do it. I mean, yeah. that's that's my job. But for average consumers, the best way for them to learn is to form a tasting group with your pals. And when people taste together, they learn so much more just by listening to what somebody else is saying. You know, uh, Jane next to me might say, you know, no, you know, Paul, uh, actually, I disagree with you. I, I, I don't think that's really hyacinth uh, scent that's similar to hyacinth. I think it's more like rose. And then I'll go, 
God, you know, you're right. <laughs> you're right. That, that is yeah. more like Rose Jane than, than Heisen. If people take five or six spirits, a bunch of friends, seven, eight great friends, and do it informally, they don't have to taste blind. Um, and just taste informally and share their experiences and maybe even rate them. You know, ah, I give this uh, three stars or I give this four stars. All of that is such good experience because it enriches everybody in that group. And because doubtless somebody's going to pick up something that there's no, they may have a sensitivity to something that I don't. And they'll pick up something and then it'll kind of click with me. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is like that, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So it, it's to me, that's the best way for average consumers to learn. Taste with a group of your pals. And not only is it fun, but you learn something. Yeah, yeah, no, to- totally agree. And I mean, back to that, I'll, I'll move on in a second. But that's, I think that's the fun because, you know, what what childhood experiences did you have? What childhood experiences did Dan have? What part of the country or world did you grow up in that you may have been exposed to something that, hey, I, I get it. I taste it. It's there, but I can't place it because maybe I only had it a few times and it it's really not resonated with me. But, you know, as soon as you say it, as you mentioned, it's like, yep, that's it. That's exact. That's what I was looking for. I just couldn't find it in there, which is uh, I think is. To your point, it is is extremely fun. Uh, well, so, tasting uh, yeah. spirits should be fun. <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the whole point of spirits <laughs> is to enrich your experience of living through your senses, and that should be fun. It, it shouldn't be it shouldn't be drudgery, and that's that's why I always encourage people: drink with your friends, you know, learn with your friends, learn from them, teach them something. Best way to go. So I'm going to ask for a little insider information or tip or or maybe. So when you're when you decided to create uh, the kindred spirit, which is uh, I don't I'll call it the uh, the spirit Bible, right? From a tasting note perspective, and and we, we don't have to go down the road. But before we we were chatting uh, a little, you know, Dan of course was having his technical difficulties, but <laughs> nevertheless. Um, uh, you know, I I, uh, I referenced a particular Clonde Sotol, right, which is the equivalent of a mezcal, if you will. It's just not made in the Oaxaca region, so they can't call it mezcal, what have you. And it, it didn't get rated positively, which which is okay. We don't, I, and that's I'm not focusing on that spirit, but there are plenty in here that that you're rating. And uh, what does it say? It says. Uh, uh, highly recommended, you know, from a recommended, recommended, highly recommended. And we've got one to four stars. So, or one to five stars, excuse me. So when, when you're doing that and, you know, I, I wrote down originally, I said, so what makes a, uh, a, a spirit, a one star or a five star? And I said, well, that's not a fair question because those are two clear uh, delineations of this shit ain't good. And oh my God, you got to re- get out and get it right now. So, so let's go, let's maybe look at it more as like a two to a four or a three to a five but but from Paul's perspective, I mean, we can all kind of guess what a one is, but but what's that defining line of, hey, this is a three and, and yes, I recommend it. But then this one is a four or a five. Like what what's the rating scale or what's running through Paul's mind when he's going through that tasting process? That that it, I have to say of all the podcasts I've been on this year for the book and other things. That's one of the best questions I've had. So I hope that doesn't mean you're hanging up on us now. <laughs> no, not at all. 
You know, the rating ratings are a funny thing. Um, I always say that no one should believe necessarily what I write or what I rate. I believe all I want to do with kindred spirits, uh, with the new kindred spirits, is to have a conversation. I actually, in some ways, prefer it when someone comes up to me and says, oh, man, that uh, that one star rating, uh, you know, I tried it and it was terrific. I, I, I thought it was really good <laughs> because then we have a conversation. If somebody agrees with me all the time and says, yeah, that, boy, that was five spirits. Absolutely. Then there's really no conversation. And right, right. so but to answer your question, I, I kind of go by this. Uh, one star is just there are major flaws with it. Major flaws for me, because I've been involved with distilling, because I know the process, because I know blending, because I know what maturation is all about. I'm able to now, <laughs> finally, after, after only 31 years, I'm actually able now to say, yeah, this is a flaw in that there was bacteria in the barrel that it was aged in. And I'm able to pick that out. Um, so if I pick up a major flaw in a product, automatically one star, that should not be on, that should not be on the shelf of any store or any back bar. Two stars would be a product that is within the uh, guardrails of its category in terms of characteristics and quality, but it's just lackluster. It's, there's not a major flaw in it, but I couldn't recommend it because there's no distinguishing characteristic about it where I could say to uh, Dan, Dan, you've got to try this because of this. Mm -hmm. It's just kind of bland. And bland to me just isn't good enough. So it's not flawed, but it's just, mm -hmm. it gets two stars and yep. not recommended. Three stars is above average, where I'm at this point, I'm going, boy, this is not only within the guardrails of what I expect from this category, but hey, this is nice. And I would actually tell Dan, you know, hey, I had this. I don't think it's great. It's not a benchmark, but hey, if you find it, it's worth the money. Four stars, now I'm beginning to get really excited because four stars is not only is this product not just within the guardrails, but it's beginning to be the guardrails because this is a really good product. And I like this, and I'm saying to Dan now, boy, you know, <laughs> this if, if you have to get in your car and even drive 20 miles to find this, this is worth it because it's so far above average that it's, it's thrilling on, on a, a sensory level. Five stars is perfection. Five stars will be when no one aspect of it, the base material, the alcohol level, the acidity, the pH, and if it's been aged in wood, the wood does not stand out. Everything is in harmony. And not only is that the guardrails of that, but 
but it's the whole highway. It's sure. it's a benchmark for that category. And it would be a product where I would say, if I had to say to Dan, you know, Dan, if, if you want to find out what American single malt is, get X product, because that that is a milestone for American single malt. So that's kind of how I look at it. Yeah. Is, no, does that no, make sense? Thank you. Yeah, yeah, no, fair assessment. And, and that, that's kind of what I was going for. I mean, we can all in our minds say, well, you know, one sucks and five is phenomenal. But I, I was looking more from from your scope and, and your palate, right? And, and, you know, how how are you digesting, you know, those notes that you're getting? And what what is that? Because it's in your head, you're putting it on paper, but what does that actually mean? And I think it makes absolute and total sense in in the direction that, that, that you kind of steered me there. So, um, Dan, you must have you must have sent him a note to go get something. He uh, he's left <laughs> us again already. And the, the vast majority of products reviewed in the New Kindred Spirits are between two and four stars. There, yeah. it's in that range, that middle range. Yeah. Have you found that? If, if you don't mind, so have you found? So this is the third edition, and yeah. and you've been tasting much longer, right? You've you. Yeah. Well, what was the first one released? Uh, Kindred Spirits One was released in 1997. Kindred okay, Spirits, so we, we, yeah, sorry, Kindred Spirits Two was uh, in 2008. Okay, so we've we've got some cadence there and kind of the release, right? Letting some stuff hit the markets. So, have you noticed a a big difference in? Um, in ratings. And again, I haven't had a chance to look at the other two, but have, have you noticed that, are you seeing more one stars, more two stars, more three? Like, are there more, you know, is, is, is it improving as, because we're definitely growing. And I, I want to talk a little about that in a second, but as, as the, uh, as, as the number of distilleries that are out there, uh, or if you want to call them blenders and we'll definitely, hopefully we'll have time to talk about that. Hopefully you don't have to jump, but um, it's what's that look like on paper, you know, as you've tasted, as you've gone through that exercise, has the quality changed in any, any direction? Yes, absolutely. Um, Cal, when, when we, uh, when the first Kindred Spirits was, uh, <laughs> was published by Hyperion, which was a, a Walt Disney company back in 1997, um, there were a lot of one and two star spirits. Wait a minute. Did you just say, did you just say Hyperion, a Walt Disney company was publishing a spirits book? Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. And, okay. But there were a lot of one and two star spirits. And the reason for that is just as I said previously, uh, spirits were not very popular, even, even by 97, even though I had been writing about spirits uh, globally for eight years, um, many distillers were still on the low on the learning curve with what to do with, with boiling product and then putting it in a barrel. So there was, there were less in 2008, Kindred Spirits 2, there were less one and two stars. Uh, and now in this edition, guys, um, I think there are probably more four and five star ratings the reason being the whole distilling industry has grown. They have matured so much since 1997, um, not only through the internet, but uh, and sharing information because many of the 
distillers are friends with each other, so they share information. Um, sure. And just the whole, the technology of distilling has become so much more sophisticated than just mm -hmm. in 1997. So the, the quality of spirits coming out now, without question, is, is much better. And that's from mainstream people. Uh, the, the craft industry, there are some amazing craft distillers, but a lot of the craft distillers are still struggling in terms of yeah, quality. Cut, cutting their teeth on getting the product right? Well, it's it, more, they'll often get the product right, but the, their biggest problem, in my opinion, is consistency where they'll get one batch of gin or American rye whiskey right, but then they can't replicate it again. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and yeah. That's, that's when people get frustrated with them. And that's why a lot of people, you know, they'll, they'll try craft distillers uh, products for a while. They get a little disappointed with them because the quality level isn't the same with many of them. And so they go back to the mainstream distillers. Um, but I think the craft people are getting better about it. They're taking more time and, you know, distilling anything is an extremely tricky proposition. I mean, these guys in Scotland and France and Ireland and who have been doing it through multiple generations, uh, there's a reason why many of these people, the women and men of Europe, the British Isles, don't even become a master distiller until they're in their late 40s or 50s. It takes a lot of time to learn how to distill and then age properly. So it's tough. And, and I certainly am not, uh, believe me, I'm not criticizing craft distillers. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. And to get it right in a consistent way is even harder. Yeah. So, so Paul, just to be respectful of your time, uh, have we got you for a few more minutes uh, or. <laughs> uh, uh, let's, let's call it 15. Okay. Okay, cool. Cause I want to talk about you, you're, as you're mentioning, so you've, and I think you've tried your hand at, uh, you, you've, you've assisted in putting together some blends before, but I think recently uh, you, it obviously not a solo project, but you were the blender of, uh, of Jacob's pardon, which I can't find in Georgia. So I didn't get an opportunity oh. to, to, uh, to, yeah, I, I didn't, didn't find it on the shelf anywhere. Maybe it's sold oh. out. I don't know if there's allocation here or what have you. It, it, is, get a available to try it. it is available. Okay. Well, yeah, I went to a few places, so maybe I'll have to go and look online and see uh, see if I can order some. But uh, but yeah, I've heard nothing but great things about it. And so, if you want to share a little about what that experience was like, I and uh, yeah, and and maybe you know, if you want to give, uh, well, I I know the well, I've got my speculation why uh, Paul Picot was the guy that do it. But uh, but what, what's told? What's the best? Well, you, you broke up a little bit, bit on me there. Um, I've actually been part of my business has been consulting to the distilling industry for about twenty five years now, and up until I would say three years ago, 
um, I always kept the lid. I, I never got into that, you know, I helped uh, develop Tanqueray Rangpour or this product or that. I never got into that. I was never interested in it. Um, and I did so because oftentimes the, the client, the distiller, uh, asked for discretion because they didn't necessarily want people to know that they were either working on a new product or um, maybe rejuvenating an old product that's been on the market sure. for a long time. Over the, over the past quarter century, I have worked on scores of products with companies from major companies, I mean, the biggest companies in the world to craft distillers. Right. And it's always been my honor to do that, that uh, people would uh, ask me to do that. Um, about three years ago, a company came to me and with a wonderful story about their family. Uh, and it had to do with prohibition. It had to do with a family member who had been thrown in jail for being arrested during prohibition for being a distiller. Um, and then Franklin Roosevelt, after uh, Prohibition was repealed in 1933, pardoned a bunch of distillers. One of them was this particular person, Jacob Taub. And it was such a good story. And I liked the family so much, the Taub family, uh, just, just as people. I thought they were terrific and had a wonderful story. And, you know, they just, they had not a clue about whiskey and they wanted to replicate as close as possible as what Jacob was doing in, during prohibition in terms of making illicit whiskey. So, um, so I said, yeah, I'll come on. And if you want to use my name, fine. Uh, you know, this will, this will be fun. This will be something different. And um, so I've been involved with that. And I will tell you guys that um, Master blending, blending anything is extremely difficult. It's, it is hard work. I mean, I will go through, I, uh, you can't see it, but behind me, right there, maybe you could see that little table. Oh, yeah. Me, oh, yeah. That's just what I'm tasting this week for one of the, the next expressions. So basically, being a master blender is tasting a lot through individual barrels and then in my head, using my palate and my experience to put together the right combination of barrels, what I think will work. So far, fingers crossed, um, it's, everything's been very well received. Um, so, you know, wow. I mean, it, it's meant a lot to me. Uh, but what's been nice is because the family story is so great, it's meant even more to them. And to be honest, that's been the biggest reward for me, the fact that they, the Taub family has been able to kind of close a circle on history so that they, their, their grand-uncle, great-uncle, had been thrown in the slammer for, for being a distiller. And then he got out, but he didn't really resume that. But now they've closed the circle so that now they're, they're back in that business again. So that's been extremely pleasant for me to, to see them so pleased with it. 
been worth sure. it. Yeah. Very, very cool. Yeah. That, that, that's gotta be a good feeling. Yeah. To, uh, to deliver. And, and again, you know, being the, uh, the familial ties there that kind of get you to, Hey, you know, we want to do this and, and, and for the lineage, right. I mean, for a reason yeah. and a purpose, and especially back to, uh, hey, you're not selling booze, you're not making booze. And then, you know, all of a sudden, uh, <laughs> yes. Oh yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, it, yeah. it's been good, and and the fact that it's been so well received uh, by critics, uh, you know, has has been really nice. And and uh, but you know, the thing is, you can't rest on your laurels. And um, the first three expressions are gone, so I have to wow. keep coming up with these babies. And so the, <laughs> the the pressure is never off. Let me tell you. That's yeah. Good. No. No. no understood. That's good. Understood. That's good. Uh, Paul, uh, before we jumped on, I mean, I said, shit, we could talk for probably three hours just on your uh, on your resume about everything that you've done and, and touched on. Uh, I, I'm not going to leave us with this, but there is one thing that I did want to hit. And I think you've got a new book coming out in a few months. Yes. Um, and, and it's about uh, one of the big... Um, uh, one of the bit larger, largest, lar- lar- largest, one of the big distilleries in Kentucky. I- I'll let you share uh, share what's coming up so people can, people can be on the lookout. Well, uh, Sue and I really used the isolation and pandemic to do some work. I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Putting out two books in one year. In fact, you guys have full license. Don't ever let me do that again. Um, no, the, the second book, <laughs> you know, and. Guys, both of these are labors of love. I'm not going to lie. I mean, we love what we do. We have the best jobs in the world. Uh, The New Kindred Spirits, we took five years, basically, to put together as a long process. And that's been out and it's been very successful. But the second book that's coming out for us this year, uh, published by a a longtime publisher of of ours, Wiley, John Wiley and Sons, um, is called Buffalo Barrels and Bourbon. Um, and it's the story of how the Buffalo Trace Distillery has become the most awarded distillery, not just in the United States, but in the world. <laughs> they, they've won more awards for their whiskeys than anybody else. Mm. And uh, it's the story of how that happened, but not just in the last 20 years, but literally from about 12,000 years ago. Because I tell the story of Buffalo Trace from the place, from the the eyes of the actual location of where it is on the Kentucky River. And what happened in that place starting 12,000 years ago at the end of the last ice age to make it such a great place to have a distillery. Wow and why it's such a great place. And then all the different personalities that have been instrumental, really, from the 1870s, from Colonel E.H. Taylor, who was uh, this incredible distiller, um, had a terrible, (laughs) terrible issue with money, but he was a damn good distiller. And then you go through Albert Blanton, and then you go through Elmer T. Lee, and you go to uh, Harlan Wheatley, where we are now. And it's, it's a wonderful saga of personalities, perseverance, people 
going through horrible floods that happened like in 1937, where basically the entire Ohio River Valley was under 10 to 20 feet of water. It's about living through prohibition. It's about living through world wars, through the Korean War, and yet coming out with great whiskey generation after generation after generation. And now some of the most iconic whiskeys, I think, in the world are coming out of Buffalo Trace. So it follows that entire line from of, of, of geological history from, from the last ice age all the way up to now to where they've become this unbelievable um, quality-driven, uh, just insane about quality uh, and experimentation. Uh, so I explain all that. Why? You know, and, and a lot of their competitors think, geez, these guys are fucking crazy to be <laughs> spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on all of this experimentation when they just make whiskey. But the whole thing is to explain why they do this, why they go to such lengths to, to they're never satisfied. They, they always think they can do better. And what is the driving force behind that? That's what the book is about. It, I have to say, it, you know, uh, I can't wait for the movie is really what I'm saying. <laughs> nice. I love this. And yeah. I, I, could look, I could look good in a little, uh, little driver's cap, I guess, if you need somebody to. By the way, did, did you have a chance to meet Elmer T. Lee? I don't know if you would have met him when yes. he was working there, but. Uh, I did. In yeah, fact, in yeah. the book, when I'm talking about Elmer, um, I had gotten a hold of his personal journal. And as I was reading through it, <laughs> I looked at, I came across my name. And February. <laughs> hold on. If it was bad, if it was bad, you don't have to talk about it. No, no, no. It was February, I think, of 1994 or something like that. I visited him, Booker No, Jimmy Russell. And, and I just did a whole big master distiller story for somebody, I forget who. And in his journal, he writes, uh, Paul Packold coming today, uh, Spirits Journal, writing about Kentucky distillers. Seems like a nice guy. <laughs> I mean, it could have been worse. But nice. the, guys, the, the funny thing about my visit with Elmer was when I, when I set it up through his assistant, she said, oh, you know, Elmer's really busy. He'll only be able to give you about 30 minutes. And I said, that's fine. 30 minutes is fine. That, you know, I, I just want to meet him and, and talk a little bit about Blantons. And I ended up being with him for three hours. And I, Holy shit. Was, and I kept saying, Elmer, you know, yeah, it's the time. Oh, don't worry about it. Let's Let me show you this other warehouse, you know. So, so, that's so, so basically... Yeah, he got the the assistant gave him the scapegoat that if uh, if he needed to get you out of there in thirty minutes, he could run your ass off, right? No, he was he was just terrific, and um, you know I, I look back on something like that and I think how lucky have I been? So I, I believe me, I don't take it for granted, guys. That's yeah. Great. Well, when, when we were communicating and, and you said, you know, shit, this was one big accident that worked out. So uh, I, I, you know, I, I think it's a very humble way to look at it. I, I think you can see it in your writing and, and how. It, uh, however, I would say that if you read it, 
uh, it's um, there's a uh, there's a, a rhythm and a cadence to your writing that is you mentioned it earlier. Right. I mean, you you've got uh, you're kind of sticking to your guns on, on what you do and and totally respectable in you know, in, in your um, uh, you know, in, in the way that you're approaching things. I, I, I think it's absolutely fantastic. And, uh, Hey, Hey, Paul, do you ever think that, um, coming from the wine world and I wanted to ask you this, but we got really long and, and if you want to answer later, you can answer later, but let me ask you real quick. Do you think that from the wine world and see how, you know, in, in the seventies and the eighties, how California exploded and the spirits just, you know, that, that took, took reign. And you said it was, it was the King, right? Do you, and we, we talked a little bit about American malt now whiskey. Do you think there's ever going to be something like that in the U S here, where we might see some kind of like Opus one type of thing here, where you see Europeans come in to do well, uh, to do whiskey here and have a collaboration. I do actually. Yeah. I, I actually, I think there's real interest, particularly in the British Isles, of what's happening here with whiskey. And I think they're really paying attention because, uh, Cal, you mentioned it earlier, how American single malt is, is now going to be defined by the TTB I mean, very shortly. So yeah. I'll tell you, the Scots in particular, they're watching what's going on. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't at all be surprised if one of the bigger houses um, – you know, like Edrington, uh, Highland Park and McAllen go into a partnership with with a local distiller here in the States. I wouldn't be surprised if that. In fact, I'd be surprised if that doesn't happen, frankly. Wow. Because okay. they need to hold up. They need a presence and need to hold on to market share because because they're going to get you, sir. I mean, it's going to be the Buffalo Trace pandemic, right? Of what? Right. Why are people in Japan buying bourbon instead of my uh, my my uh, my malt or Scotch whiskey, right? Yeah. Well, you know, Dan, just just you mentioning Opus with the cross pollinization of California and France. I mean, that's the prime example of of mm -hmm. how successful that particular marriage was. So, it, to me, it stands to reason that at some point, and it may happen soon, that somebody either from Ireland or Scotland is going to merge with somebody or come up with some sort of a, a, a dual uh, effort between British Isles and American distilling. Uh, you know, boy, what a great story that would be first. It would be. Uh, hold, hold on. Did I just hear there's a new book coming out? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and Paul, it, it's been such a pleasure uh, I want, well, I would ask, I want a, a negative, I don't want to put it like that, but I would love, love to get back on with you, um, when the, uh, when the new book comes out and, uh, and have another chat and I'd love to do that. Dan, you in? I'm in, you know, and Paul, it's great to hear you have the two books coming out in one year. I told Cal his strategy was wrong. And this is a direct lift is not my joke, but he said, once this pandemic is done, he's finally going to get to that great novel. Guys, I'd love to come on again. It's been such a pleasure being with you both. And, uh, you know, let's do it again. I'd love to. Awesome. Yeah. Great time awesome. chatting with Paul Picoult. Um, so Paul, I, I know I hit on a couple things that, that you're doing that are out there. So uh, obviously, uh, the new Kindred Spirits. Uh, you've got the new um, 
Buffalo's Barrels and Bourbon. Yeah, I hope I, I think I got those right. Yeah, and uh, and then people can also find you at uh, the Spirits Journal. Actually, uh, the best way to get a hold of me for people who are listening would be just through my website, which is fpaulpackle.com. Okay, cool. Awesome. Uh, sir, once again, such a pleasure and a treat for you to share uh, share with us, man. We are, we are oh, truly humbled. Yeah, we'd love to do it again. Cheers, Paul. Cheers. Thank you, fellas. Love to see you again. All right. Bye.